Pray with me this morning. Heavenly Father, Lord, as we come to you now, we thank you, Lord, for the ways that you're at work in this world, um, the ways that you are uh, breaking into this sinful, dark world with the light of the gospel and with the glorious truths of your kingdom. Lord, we praise you for uh, the role that we each have in that. We thank you, God, that you have called us to be a part of a, of a bigger scheme, of a greater plan of spreading the good news to all men. Lord, we thank you for the job description you've given to all Christians to be gospel-spreading, disciple-making children of yours. But God, as we think about what you're doing in the world and as we think about the needs in this world and as we think about even the needs that surround us, as we think about how challenging it is to share our faith, as we think about these things, we can get so overwhelmed and we're so tempted to draw ourselves back and to be, um, to settle for a life of mediocrity, of just quiet, run-of-the-mill um, American life. So God, I thank you, Lord, for what you're doing at Harbin's. I pray that you would do much more. I pray, Father, that you would move in our hearts, challenge us to be people on mission for you as I bring this report this morning of what you did in my life over the past week. Lord, may it be edifying. May it be gospel-centered. May it be, uh, Lord, totally reliant upon what you have to say in your word. We confess our sin to you this morning, Lord, that if there's anything here that we're harboring, any sin against a brother, any sin, hidden sin, any public sin, Lord, we confess those to you, ask you, Lord, to forgive us of our sins, to cleanse us from unrighteousness, to make us ready to hear your word this morning. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning, everybody. It's good to see you. It's good to be back here with my family, my church family. Um, Thank you for allowing me to be gone for a couple of Sundays uh, to be on a mission trip with my son in Honduras, in Tegucigalpa, Honduras. It was a, a tremendous time, and I'm so thankful that we have a church that's, um, that's allowing me to do that when, when things like that come up. Um, believe it or not, that's not necessarily the norm. I was on this trip with uh, three other pastors, and one of the pastors basically... Uh, had to use all of his vacation time in order to go on the mission trip. And, um, and I was a little disappointed as he talked about his church and how many of them didn't uh, get why he was going away for a couple of Sundays. And, and so I'm just thankful that we have a church here that's, uh, that's understanding and willing to let you know, the pastors here and, and anyone here for that matter just go out and be on mission. And I'm very thankful for Deemer who did a phenomenal job with two wonderful messages over the past two Sundays. I hope you guys recognize what a gem we have in Deemer, and I'm so thankful that God, um, well, God's kept him here up to this point, and praise God for Deemer and his partnership here at, uh, at Harbin's. Um, let me tell you what I'm going to do a little bit this morning. I, I am going to break away from our Ephesians uh, series just for today, just to, uh, I wanted to bring a report of what God's done in my heart, and, and how God has spoken to me through his word. Uh, during this this mission trip that Noah and I were on, 
Um, and so I'm going to be hopping around to a lot of different passages in Scripture. But if you, if you don't have a Bible this morning and you want to, to try to hop with me, then uh, Mark's got uh, some Bibles here. So just raise your hand if you're needing a Bible this morning, and he will, will get you one. All right? There we go. Now, a little bit about our trip first, um, and, uh, and then I'll tell you why I felt led to go down this road today. Um, uh, first of all, just want to share with you guys a little bit. Um, let's go back. Let's see. There we go. That slide right there is the one I want. This is our team that went down to Honduras, to Tegucigalpa, Honduras. I'm going to just share with you a little bit about what God did while we were down there. And I, I'm, tried to, I'm trying to put my thoughts, or God really dealt with me in a lot of ways. This was a life-changing trip for me and for Noah. And he dealt with me in a lot of ways. And so to a certain degree, it was, a lot of it was kind of dis, disjointed. And I've tried to put it into three main categories this morning that, that I believe, hopefully, by uh, the will of God, will be edifying to you this morning. But this was our team, 27 of us from uh, five different churches on mission in Honduras. This was organized by uh, my dad. Uh, he's the one standing right beside me there to the right. It was organized by, by him and, and some of the people from his association where he's the director of missions up in North Carolina. But like I said, there were, there were 27 of us that went on this trip. It was an amazing team. It really was. I've been on different mission trips before, but I've never been a part of a team like this. It was a tremendous um, oneness and unity on this team that was very unique, and we praise God for how His Holy Spirit moved while we were down there. You notice that it was a very intergenerational trip. There's Noah standing there, my uh, just-turned-13-year-old, uh, standing right beside the oldest member of our team who was in her 70s, uh, and the youngest member of our team uh, is the young man standing beside my dad who was 11. So it was neat to see really fleshed out what the vision is of this church, which is to be a, a place where the generations converge to enjoy God and, and change the world. And we certainly had a, an overflow of joy during the week. And we believe that God used this uh, team to, in one little way, change the world. On Sunday, when we got down there, we got down there on, a, on Sunday, and we, oh no, we got down there on a Saturday, but on the first day that we were there on Sunday, we, we went to a, two different congregations, two different local congregations where we, we worshiped with them. Members of our team preached. Others gave testimonies. Others sang. Um, that evening we spent, uh, we got really busy, began sorting meds because um, the, one of our teams was a team that was going to be doing a, a medical clinic. We, we worked on sorting meds, getting school supplies together for uh, some of the outreaches we were going to be doing, get our VBS stuff together and everything. On Monday and Tuesday, we broke up into our teams. We had a VBS team that did um, VBS ministry to kids at the camp where we were staying. One group did construction work on a clinic that's at that camp where we were staying. Another group uh, did a medical clinic at one of the buildings there in the camp, while another group worked with women um, doing a women's ministry to the women of the community. There's a village that surrounds this camp outside of Tegucigalpa, an extremely impoverished area. On Wednesday and Thursday... We went out um, to a specific part of Tegucigalpa that was ex another extremely impoverished area and actually a dangerous area. My dad didn't really tell us that until after we were done with our work. But it was a dangerous area because there's lots of crime in the area. But we went out basically and just went um, street, did some street evangelism, went, did some visits to some church members that are sick, um, uh, just did some visitations, some street ministry, and door-to-door um, uh, -door evangelism. 
and just reaching out to people however we could as we were out there. We passed out a lot of tracts, a lot of Bibles, uh, and spoke to a lot of people. Uh, then the afternoon we had our VBS ministry at, the, at that local church. We did that for two days while one of the teams went to another local church and did a, um, another medical clinic where they saw um, in two days, I think they saw 380 people uh, 380 groups of people, families that came through to the point that they just ran out of medicine. We ran out of a medicine that we needed for the trip. Um, and then uh, on Friday, we had a very special visit that morning that I'll talk to you about in a second. And then the afternoon, we had a block party at that other church. There were two churches we worked with, Emmanuel Church with Pastor Oscar and Renacer Church with Pastor Genero. Uh, Renacer, that word means uh, to be reborn or to be a new birth. So it was New Birth Church and Emmanuel Church there in Tegucigalpa. Now, as I go through talking about some, I'm going to share some stories from the trip and some pictures. This isn't going to be your, you know, missionary slideshow thing, but I will have some pictures up there. And I'm going to share some stories. I may get a little emotional as I share some of the stories. And I wanted to make sure that I wasn't doing this, coming and doing this because I mean, how many of y'all have been on a mission trip and you come off the mission trip and you have just sort of this spiritual high, right? And you come off the mission trip, you're in this, you're having this high and you miss it and you want to be, you want everyone else to know about it. And, and I wanted to make sure that God had put upon my heart to share this information with you today for the right reasons. Um, because I don't want to just be on an emotional or spiritual high. Um, but you do, you, you come, you come, you get done with a trip like this and you come back. It's like, I liken it to the disciples coming off the Mount of Transfiguration, and they come back, and there's demon-possessed people they have to deal with, all right? Um, and so that's how you feel when you come back to real life. I'm not saying that anybody here is demon-possessed. I'm just saying that you come out of a trip like this, you're on this mountaintop experience, and then you got to deal with, with real life. But in reality, I feel like there are several crossroads that are happening right now. Number one of the crossroads is just with my son Noah. He's at that intersection between adulthood and childhood, and it was one of the reasons we went on this trip. Uh, it was part of his uh, 13th birthday celebration was to go on this trip. And so it was really neat to see how God worked in his life in absolutely amazing ways. And he's just now recuperating. And what I mean by that is for the first three days, um, he's just struggled. He's come back to the station and just struggled with our wealth. Uh, with our lack of compassion overall for, for people in the world, um, with his own possessions that he has. What, how, does he, how do you deal with that? If you've seen the stuff he's seen, how do you deal with these things? And, uh, and there's a balance there. You know, you, you come back and you want to sell everything and, and just and, and, and go. He, wanted, he, he literally wants to move back to Honduras. Um, and you've got to find a, a healthy biblical balance there as to how do you deal with when you've seen the type of poverty and things we've seen and then you come back to the States. But that's a healthy struggle I want him to have. I want him to struggle with those things. I want all you guys to struggle with those things as well. So Noah was at a crossroads. Myself, I, I have felt that I've been a bit at a crossroads myself over the past probably six months. And this trip helped me in a lot of ways deal with a lot of things on my heart um, but things just regarding um, my own challenges and, and sins and difficulties with life and my future and what it's God doing in my heart. And then I feel like our church is at a crossroads. I really do. I feel like Harbin's is at a bit of a crossroads right now that 
we're making decisions. We've got to make, we've got to make decisions that will affect who we are. I feel like we've been a little bit, uh, for about the past year, schizophrenic. Who are we as a church? What are we doing as a church? What's our purpose? What does God have for us? It was easy when we started Harbin's. We were all on mission. I mean, you had no choice but to be on mission when you're meeting in a school and you're trying to get this. The church was the mission. Uh, I remember it seemed like there was tremendous uh, amount of joy. I, I say that, but maybe you didn't think it was joy. But I think it was joy in being involved in— I just hit the clicker, sorry— um, being involved in, in, in setup. You know, everyone, not everyone, a lot of people got there early and we start setting up and we get things set up and we were on mission. And before we even began to worship, we'd already served the Lord in some sort of capacity that morning. It was kind of exciting. Yes, it got tiring. And then we got the building. And then it's 9.30 and people are scraggling in and there's that loss of a little bit of that sense of what are we doing here? What's our purpose? And so I really do feel like Harbin's is in a place where we've got to make some decisions. Like, who are we going to be? What are we going to do? What's our mission in this community? And what's our purpose? And, um, and so I believe this mission trip helped me uh, with that as well. So the title of today's message is, uh, is this. Let's see if I can make my clicker work. Intentionally Missional Christianity. Intentionally Missional Christianity. John twenty twenty one. Jesus said to them, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Christianity is a sending faith. One of the differences between the Old and the New Covenants, between Israel and uh, what we call the church, the ecclesia, is that Israel was to be a light to the Gentiles, but was a come-and-see, attractional type of people. The church in the New Covenant context is an as-you-go, sent type of people. Our faith in Christ is intentionally to be spread to our communities, to our nation, and to the world. We are called to be a missional people. Now that word missional has, has been overused a lot these days. Um, and so it's, some people don't like it. But what I mean by missional is that it's more than just being caring about um, sharing your faith or caring about evangelism or caring about missions or just being mission-minded. A lot of Southern Baptist churches are mission-minded. And a lot of times we call mission-minded dropping a check for missions in the offering plate. That's what we call mission-minded. And missional is more than that. It's, it's looking at your whole life, every relationship you have, every place that God's placed you as a mission field. And living that way. And not necessarily expecting the church to put some program in place or something, uh, 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 some sort of event in place or mission trip in place in order for you to begin to practice missional Christianity. It's a lifestyle. The vision of our church, the vision statement that pops up every Sunday on that title slide is this. Church where the generations converge to enjoy God and change the world. Now, do we really think that's going to happen? Do we really mean that? Do we really plan to be a church that's going to change the world? That's one of my questions. That's one of the crossroads we're at. One of our core values is that we are to be intentionally missional. 
I think one of the things that I've done poorly is to communicate the core values of this church on a consistent basis. What was the vision that God placed on my heart and the heart of the five families that planted this church uh, nearly, well, over four years ago now? What was our vision? What was the, the core values that drove us? And uh, failure to, to continually mention those and keep those in front of us can lead to a drift. where We drift from who God's called us to be. Now, not every church is called to be exactly the same. I don't believe that God has a cookie cutter up their shape for every church. Now, certainly there are certain things that are guided by the Scripture that we are to practice. But you go down to this Honduras. There were two very different churches we were working with. Both of them Baptist churches. Both of them doctrinally the same. But practice, they did different things. They did things differently. And that's okay. And God had created different churches. And one church was in a very impoverished section of town where there's practically no men that live in that community because all the fathers have abandoned the families. And another one lives, another church is located right in a more upscale part of town where there's more intact families, but where their materialism, our American materialism, has creeped in and infected the society so bad in that part of Honduras that... Uh, that they are buying into the same type of Christianity we have here in the States, which is a consumer Christianity. And so, two different churches dealing with two different cultures, trying to contextualize the, the, the never-ending, never-changing gospel message to the community that God's placed them in. So, that's what we're called to be too, the church that God's called us to be. And I want us to think about who God's called us to be. So on our little um, map here, you'll see that dot right there. That's where we were in Tegucigalpa, Honduras. And the first thing that God just really laid upon my heart all week, and it's something he's been actually dealing with me with for about six months, is this. Intentionally missional Christianity is fueled by love. I struggled when I got to Honduras. My purpose for going to Honduras was to take my son on a mission trip where God could do something in him, <laughs> to be honest with you. That was my purpose. And so I got down there, and that first day of ministry, really the first two days of ministry, I was struggling. I was really, really struggling. I was struggling as, I drove through the, as we drove through the streets of Honduras, and where, where um, I guess, traffic laws really don't exist. And I'm sitting here with this this judgmental um, American, oh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? An entitlement sort of attitude. Oh, these people. If they would just. And, and I, had a, I was struggling. I wasn't filled with or fueled by love in any sort of way during those first couple of days of the mission trip. And I had taken a book with me that I've been reading through very slowly and it's a book I highly recommend called um, Maximum Impact. And uh, the book basically is an exposition of 1 Corinthians 13, um, which is the famous love chapter. And God just reminded me once again while I was down there. It says, if I speak in the tongues of men and angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. So that first Sunday, I got up and gave my testimony Honestly, I was a little ticked because one of the other pastors was getting to preach, and I wanted to preach. 
So my testimony kind of came a mini-sermon anyway, about a 20-minute long testimony. But I wasn't speaking out of love. I was speaking even in their tongue. But it didn't matter how well I spoke Spanish. It didn't matter how eloquently I shared my testimony. It was... How annoying would that get for 20 minutes? It was a clanging gong. That's what I was. That first day, for 20 minutes, a clanging gong. God dealt with me that night as I read that passage and realized all I did was stand up in the pulpit that Sunday and clang. Because I didn't have love for the Honduran people. I didn't have love for... um, I didn't have love for Christ that morning. I had love for me. Verse 2. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge and have all faith so as to remove mountains, boy, wouldn't that be a great description of church members? I would love to have some you guys just be so filled with knowledge and mysteries. You've got doctrine down. You, you embrace the great mysterious doctrines of the faith so wonderfully. And you can express them so well. And you have so much faith. You can move mountains. But if I have not love, I am nothing. Nothing. Verse 3, if I give away all I have, like Noah wants to do now, If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. And so God just kept hammering me with this passage of Scripture. You're down here in Honduras, Steve. You're giving up time. You're giving up money to be down here. You're speaking to these people. You got the language down, but you don't have any love. I wasn't fueled by love on two fronts. Love for Jesus and love for the people. Both must exist in our hearts in order for us to really be missional Christians. Deemer mentioned this, I think, two weeks ago. But the Ephesian church was struggling with love. To get the love thing right. We know that from Revelation 2. Matter of fact, Jesus said, if you don't get this love thing right, I'm going to take away the lampstand. He was going to take away the very presence of his spirit with them. To be a church. And that should be a very scary thing to us as a church. These are the crossroads I'm talking about. We can do a lot of good things at Harbin's. Make the list. Whatever list you want it to be, put it into 1 Corinthians 13. We can do this, and 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 we can, we can do a thousand different things. But if we don't have love, if we don't get the love thing right, then we're in a perilous situation as a church. And so I believe God's brought this convergence of, of uh, several things in my life. I think books I've been reading, uh, the fact that we're in Ephesians and it deals so much with love and the church and this trip and challenging myself and this church to be genuinely loving, loving Jesus and loving people. A question hit me as I was down there. I saw poverty. On three different levels. Let me show you some pictures here. There was 
poverty. That poverty is, is bad, if not worse, than the poverty we have here in the States right there. That was the area where we were doing our street evangelism. Uh, it's not even really a good picture to represent what some of these, these are just tons of little bitty houses, almost built on top of each other and dirt roads. And um, the ladies, we told them not to wear sandals when they went out that day because of the stuff that's on the street. You just don't want to step in it. It's all over the place. And it's not just dog stuff. Then there's bad poverty. There's poverty. Then there was bad poverty. And I just, this was one of the houses that was just, you know, has no running water, no electricity. Um, it was near where, where we were at the camp. And there were just many, many houses like this. This would be happened to one of the ones we had a picture of. And then there was shocking poverty. Uh, this is the city dump in Tegucigalpa. You'll see people up there just walking around. They're just picking through this. And this isn't just a pile of trash right here. That's a house. That's where somebody sleeps at night. And they get come out in the morning and they rummage through the trash and the children take plastic, whatever they can find, cans, and they, they take these big bags. I think that's an example of one of the bags, these gigantic bags, and they fill it with, with what they can find. And then they go right up the road, which isn't far, very far from the dump, and they sell it. So they'll sell their big bag of plastic to some guy that recycles plastics and, and make money off of that. And so we saw three different levels of poverty, and here's the question that haunted me do i love the honduran people or do i just pity them and feel sorry for them you see that 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 stirs up pity in every heart in this room i hope if it doesn't then we've got other issues but pity isn't the same thing as first corinthians 13 love feeling sorry for someone's not the same and so I was haunted by this question as I saw poverty every day there. Do I love these people or do I just pity them? You see, the world has no problem with pity. We can stir up, show an infomercial, put video to this. You can stir up pity and make money that way, drawing in donations to help the Honduran children, which isn't a bad thing. What I'm saying, though, is it's not sufficient is not sufficient do i have just empathy or christ-like compassion and so i was thinking about the difference between love that we are to have biblical love and maybe just the compassion that every warm-blooded human being should have i mean angelina jolie goes out and Adopts children, right? So this is not, the things we do, even adoption, don't necessarily show, really, that we have Christ-like love. Because compassion can stir up those things and come generate some results. One of the things that God certainly laid upon my heart is that we do need to be, as a church, seeking ways to relieve physical suffering in the world. But most certainly, one of the things that distinguishes Christian love from 
the world's compassion and the world's empathy is that we're not just trying to relieve the suffering of our fellow men. Our love goes deeper and we have a concern for their spiritual plight. We do worry and we care for the pain that they're going through, but we have a deeper concern for their spiritual condition. A proper doctrine of God's justice and hell doesn't excuse people that are living in a dump. God's not just just and sends people to hell who aren't in bad situations. Every man on this planet, apart from the grace of Jesus Christ, is destined for hell, where they will experience God's just wrath for an eternity. The grocery clerk you've just gotten to know, the neighbor that bugs you, the other mom on your kid's sports team, that jerk that mocks your faith, that quiet, nice old lady down the road, they are all destined for the same hell if we do not know and receive, if they do not know and receive the good news of Jesus Christ. And do we really believe in hell? I think one of the things that affects the church and keeps us from having 1 Corinthians 13 type love is because I really don't think we believe in hell or we don't really believe everyone's necessarily going to hell if they don't know Jesus. One, only one point, the latest statistic I saw, one and a half percent of Americans, only one and a half percent of Americans think they're actually going to go to hell when they die. So that's 98.5% that, no, I'm fine. Jesus used a word for hell. Um, Jesus used a word for hell called Gehenna. Gehenna was referring to a valley outside of Jerusalem where the junk, the fecal matter, everything was dumped. And it would be on fire much of the time, and there was smoke rising from it. And as we were out at this dump, that just kept popping in my mind. Because there were these fumes coming off the dump, this horrible smell, and there was parts of it that were being burnt, and there was smoke rising. And the people in Honduras were so friendly, except the people in the dump. They were screaming at us as we drove up there. Literally screaming at us. And I want you to notice something here. That is a buzzard or a vulture. I don't know the difference. It's one of those birds that just um, feasts on death. And they were swarming over the skies, over the dump. It was almost like the people were already living in death. And these kids right here are getting their lunch from the same place the vulture is getting his lunch. This dump is the place where vultures and children share their lunch. And as we drove off that hill, which is literally made of trash, the hills back here are made of dirt, this one's made of trash. As we drove off that hill, all I could think of was I just got a glimpse of hell. I just got a glimpse of hell. Gehenna as we drove off that mountain, except that it's going to be infinitely worse than that. So the gospel of Jesus Christ is what drives us to true love. Because the gospel has to be 
given to these people. We, we need to do things as churches to relieve the suffering in this world, but we also must get them the gospel. This next picture, well, there's the vultures. This next picture is a school at the bottom of the hill, the bottom of this mound of trash. The government gave them this land because a news channel down there did a story on how bad the situation was and all the children that lived in the dump. It embarrassed the government of Honduras, and so a missionary couple had approached them and said, hey, we would like to start a school for the children there. And they gave them money, or they gave them land to start this school. This is run by two missionaries, and here's what they do. Because those kids make money by getting those bottles and cans and then taking them up the street for them to be bought, the parents don't want them to go to school because they are a source of income for the family. And so this school actually pays children, pays the parents for the children to come to the school. They go to the parents and say, we will give you money what your kids will be making off the selling of their things for you to put them in this school. And it's right at the foot of this garbage mound. And so literally, they are, they are yanking children out of hell. Not only are they dealing with the physical situation these children are facing, but this is a gospel-centered, this is a Christian, evangelical, gospel-centered school where the gospel is being shared with these children as well. They are paying the price to get these children out of hell. They are being the hands and feet of Jesus in a very literal way. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Two, in love, meet physical needs and spiritual needs. Historically, Christians have started schools and orphanages and hospitals because we are called to minister to the whole man, especially and most importantly and most pressingly the spiritual need, but not to neglect his physical plight, his physical situation. Our, cur- our concern for the spiritual needs is accompanied by our concern for the physical needs. Intentionally missional Christianity is fueled by love. Matthew eleven fifteen, Jesus explaining to some who were asking, just explaining what his ministry was all about, says, the blind receive their sight, and the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have the good news preached to them. Literally, that means evangelized to them. The poor are being evangelized. Jesus had a concern for the physical plight of the people that came to him, but also, most importantly, the good news was being preached to them as well. Soul-saving, poverty-killing, justice-bringing, sickness-healing, in-breaking of the kingdom of God is what we are called to be a part of. 1 Peter 2.19. Now here's 2.9, sorry. I'll go there in a second. Here's the challenge. Okay? Here's the challenge is that, that many churches, or many Christians for that matter, we, we kind of pick a side. I don't want to be aligned with social gospel. And so we come to the other pendulum and say, well, we're going to be word-centered and, and, and doctrine-focused, which is right. But oftentimes it's the neglect of dealing with social ills in our world. But the Bible, I, to me, I think it's just so clear that we're called to deal with both. 
First Peter 2 9 but you are a chosen race a royal priesthood a holy nation a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies okay there's a, a proclamation of the gospel that's what we are to be doing proclamation of the gospel proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light once you were not a people but you now you are a pe- God's people once you had not received mercy but now you have received mercy Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Verse 12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may what? They may see your good works, your good deeds, and glorify God on the day of visitation. So there's a proclamation of His excellencies and there's a doing of good deeds that both glorify and magnify God and speak to the gospel truth of what Jesus has accomplished good deeds and are means to a god-glorifying gospel proclaiming end even if the people to whom we're doing the good deeds never come to faith it glorifies god some would say that our good deeds and our mercy ministry should be confined to the brothers in the church well our brothers within the church are to be our first priority but the need-meeting ministry that we are to be doing as a church goes beyond these walls and deals with needs in our community. Galatians 6, 9 through 10. And let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. So there's a call to do good deeds, to show mercy, to meet needs of everyone that we possibly can but especially of those within the household of faith. 1 Thessalonians 3.12 And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all. There's a young lady named Paola that we found out about on the second to last day of the trip. My dad was just working with some people in the community, and they said, hey, there's a family in need over here. So he went over there, made to meet with this family, had opportunities to witness to the family. They didn't make a decision for Christ. They heard the gospel, but they had a terrible need. They had a daughter named Paula who is now, I think, 10 years old. When she was Three, I believe, if I remember the story correctly, they, they noticed she was having a lot of behavior dis- issues. And they, they took her to a doctor there in Honduras. And doctor said, well, her mind is messed up. Her brain's messed up. Basically, she's, she's going to be um, unable to function as a normal human being. And this is what the doctor said to them. Just, just consider her your little perrito for the rest of your life. Consider her your little puppy for the rest of your life. The Honduran doctor said, your daughter is a dog, in other words. Just treat her like that. A few years later, an American doctor was able to see this girl. And um, the doctor diagnosed her as having CP. And immediately, they, as fast as they could, did some surgery. And I don't know how, how all the ins and outs of what goes on with CP. But they had to do some surgery on her legs to try to help her so she could walk. And it was something about... Um, the muscles and tendons and dealing with some sort of surgery there. And some of, you, some of you probably know a lot more about how that works than I do. But um, this had, surgery had been uh, about a year ago, and she had never gotten the walker she needs. 
She needs, like, like I said, it was a rear walker to help her, or else that surgery will just reverse itself over a period of time. So dad shared the gospel with this family, and he came back up and said, listen, I ran into this family today, and I want to tell you what, the, what happened. He goes, and they're, they're impoverished. They have no money, and they need this walker, and they have a prescription from the doctor for the walker, and it's going to cost $460. Um, and we had our worship service that night, and before the worship service was done, my dad had $460 in his pocket because everyone just immediately reached into their pockets and began to get out whatever change they had, and we piled it together and were able to take Paula, her, her walker. I don't know if that family will ever come to Christ. But our call wasn't just to go in there and say, well, here's the gospel. Our, our responsibility was to go say, here's the gospel, and now I'm going to live the gospel by meeting your need however I can. I don't know. My dad didn't leave there saying, hey, we're going to go get you a walker. He just, he just knew the need, and he brought it to our little group of believers, 27 of us. And then there was just an outpouring of genuine love for someone, for a person who is in a difficult situation, and God provided. And now a physical need is being met, and perhaps God's going to use that to melt some hard hearts for the gospel to be received. Love compels us. Love for our fellow man, love for the gospel, which our fellow man so desperately needs, and love for our Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.14 says, For the love of Christ controls us. The gospel drives us to love. And that love should be evidenced by the way we live, but also by the way we speak. Colossians 4, 5 says, Walk in wisdom toward outsiders. Make the best use of the time. Let your speech always be seasoned. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Missional Christianity cares about how the gospel is spoken as well. The way we speak is as important as what we speak. It is possible to speak the gospel in a manner where the message is spot on, but our manner is contradictory to what we are proclaiming. There's a place for boldness. There's a place for speech seasoned with salt. Gracious. I believe that partially because of that passage and many other, that much of what we do in our missional Christian life is built around relationships. It's got to be relational for the sake of the gospel. Pastor Oscar, who was the pastor of that church in Emmanuel, he's actually pretty well to do. He has a house in another part of the city. But when they built the church two years ago, Baptist men from North Carolina went down and built this church. He told them, I want you to build on a room on the back of the church because I've got to live here. And so they built them a house onto the back of the church. It's the bottom story. It's like a hill that goes like this. So the church is actually like four stories just stacked on top of each other on this hill. I mean, Lord knows if another hurricane comes through Honduras what it would do to the buildings that are there. But this building's pretty sound, and at the bottom of that building, he lives. Not because he has to. He has a house. He has a very nice house in the good section of town. He lives there because he wants to relate to the people that God has asked him to minister to. He is practicing a relational gospel with the people of that community, and it is taking him a lot of time to build inroads into that community, and it's costing him a lot. He's been held up by gunpoint twice in the last two years since he's been there. 
This guy right here, if I can bring it up. That's our bus driver. Eugene was his English name. I think it was Eugenio is what it was in Spanish. Um, this guy was not open to the gospel. When he, he basically said, I don't, I don't have faith. I don't, you know, I, I know about Jesus and church. Everyone there in Honduras knows about Jesus. It's a very Catholic church. I'm a Catholic um, country, so they know the name Jesus, I should say. He said, I don't have any faith. And as our team tried to share the gospel with him during the first few days, he was resistant. It was very clear he didn't want to hear anything else about it. And he was actually wouldn't even talk very much to our to my dad as he sat in the front seat or any of our team members. After three days, he was he drove the medical team. After three days of watching the medical team minister to over 350 families that came in from everything from stomach pain to serious, serious medical issues. On that third day, he said, you know what? I've seen what you're doing. And now I'm ready to listen. I've seen the gospel. He didn't put it in these words. I've seen the gospel in your hands as you've ministered to the sick and the hurting. I've seen it. Now I'm ready to listen. Eugenio didn't make any gospel, pray any prayer on the spot. But he's heard it now. (laughs) He's heard it now. Our team just ministered to him. His whole disposition changed. That was him the last three days. His whole disposition changed. All of a sudden, these gringos that were down there had something more to offer than just coming down and having pity on the Honduran people. There was a genuine love, the love of Christ that was flowing out and actually ministering to people for a purpose higher than just pity. And he began to understand and see the gospel behind it all. The last day, we gave him a brand new Bible. And you would have thought we just paid off his mortgage or something. There's a heart that I believe is ripe to receive Christ at any minute now if it hasn't already. Because he saw what we were doing. I was so moved by my parents' um, witness. My parents were missionaries in Quito, Ecuador. I knew they loved the Ecuadorian people. Um, I was there when they loved the Ecuadorian people. And then they retired from the mission field, resigned from the mission field, moved back to the States where my dad pastored a Hispanic church. And then 10 years ago, all of a sudden he said, hey, your mom and I are going to live in Honduras for a year. Frankly, I thought they were just kind of nuts. They went down to Honduras to facilitate mission teams. And every year since then, they've gone back. My dad's been to Honduras three times this year. Pray that his association up there will continue to be as generous towards him and his mission trips as you guys have been towards me for being gone for two weeks. Um, But I just saw this love for the Honduran people. Just love just flowing out of them. And it really became evident. The last day we went to this place called Valle de Angeles. And we weren't going really to do any ministry, although it became one of our most fruitful ministry days because we shared the gospel with a lot of people on the streets. We were going there to shop because it's kind of, actually kind of the tourist area. And so you go get your machetes. Noah came home with a new machete. Please pray for us. 
Um, it's where you get the machetes and you get the, the, the quilts and all the neat things and the Honduran soccer t-shirts and everything you want to go back home with. But as we were walking through that town, and it's still very quaint, it's, it's still very, uh, it's not like an American town, it's still these Honduran buildings, but people were stepping out the doors and just saying hi to my mom and dad. And I was like, Mom, do you know everybody in this town? She said, yeah, pretty much. <laughs> they have been building relationships for 10 years with people in that town. Some of them have come to faith in Christ as fruit of that relationship building. Some of them have not. But they've been intentionally building relationships. And if God, in order to show me that this wasn't just some Honduran thing, when we came back to the States, uh, Noah and I, before we drove back down here, it was crazy. We flew through Atlanta to Greensboro, where my car was, and drove back to Atlanta. You know, that's just, I wanted, and we got delayed in Atlanta for three hours. Our plane got stuck here because the stewardess hadn't showed up, and they didn't know where she was, or the flight attendant, whatever her name is. Anyway, that's a whole other story. I was still a little bitter about that. Um, so we get to Greensboro. So we've got to drive back. So my mom and dad take Noah and I to Noah's favorite restaurant, which is Cracker Barrel, the next day. And we sit down at Cracker Barrel, and the waitresses start coming and talking to my mom and dad. All of them. Hey, Larry. Hey, Becky. How are y'all doing today? And they're just talking to them. Dad said, hey, how's your daughter's surgery? How did it go? Oh, da, da, da. And, and I was just amazed that mom and dad have have done something that I failed to do. And that is they've been so intentional about building relationships with everybody they come in contact to, contact with. That they've had opportunities to share the gospel more than I've had. So we love, we, we take the gospel, we do so because we love Jesus. We are driven by our love for Christ, which means we obey his commands to take his gospel to the ends of the earth. Someone asked, well, someone asked me this week, I was talking with someone from another church, I said, well, what's your view on evangelism? They found out my, they, they were too, I was talking to them about some of my theological perspectives on some things, and they were concerned, and they said, well, pff, how do, what's your view on evangelism? And uh, I said, well, you know, we are to obey Christ. He calls us to, to evangelize. That's, it's, a, it's a matter of obedience. Um, but afterwards, I realized my answer wasn't sufficient because it's also a matter of love. You see, I think there's a lot of us here that agree, oh yeah, we're supposed to evangelize. It's a matter of obedience. But Jesus ties obedience and love together, doesn't he? In John 14, 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Love, you can go out and just try to obey Jesus' commands. Good luck. If you are not empowered by, driven by love, it's going to be useless. Jesus told us his command is for us to be witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. We do that because we love Him. We obey because He loves us and we love Him. It's all tied together. To love Christ is to know Christ, to have Him with you to the end of the age, is to have Christ manifested to us through the presence of His Holy Spirit. There is a way to live Christianity. There is a way to even obey that is loveless, yet full of head knowledge and full of religious experiences that mean nothing. That's what 1 Corinthians 13 is all about. 
There's a way to do the Christian life that be filled with knowledge and power and remain loveless. I think that's what Jesus warns us about in Matthew 7, 22. On that day, many will come to him and say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Cast out demons in your name? Do many mighty works in your name? There's another good description of church members. I would love to have someone say, what's your church like? Oh, oh man, they do all these things. Wow. But Jesus said to them, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness, for I never knew you. Never knew you. That means it was a loveless Christianity that these people had. It was empty. It was devoid of truth. Matthew 25, 41. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. And they will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer to them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into the eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Our actions demonstrate the presence of Christ our love for him, his love for us, his love flowing through us. But some will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? That came from the words of, from the lips of James John says in 1 John 3, 18, Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Christ Jesus in John 15 speaks of us being people who produce fruit. He tells us in Matthew 7 that that fruit will be the evidence of true faith. And what is that fruit that comes from deeds and, and, and words? Galatians 5, 22 says, Our fruit of the Spirit is love, first of all. And then joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That's what comes out of a person who truly is loving. And who knows how to love indeed with actions as well as with his words. Missional, missional Christianity is fueled by love. The love of Christ and his gospel message and the love for people. Lack of either of these, love for Christ, love for people will be lacking in a full, robust understanding of and practice of outreach, evangelism, missions, and missional living. But here's the problem. I can't do it, and neither can you. I can't love that way, and neither can you. We all have a major problem. We can't Love the way we're called to love. John 17, 26. Wait, I'll read that in a second. In other words, we need the gospel in order to love. Christ making his appeal through us. We cannot love the way we should. We're too wicked. You're too wicked. I'm too wicked. We must fall on our knees at the foot of the cross and beg for Christ's love to be made manifest in us and through us. Otherwise, we have just created another law. 
that we're unable to keep. If I tell you and challenge you and exhort you to love, 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 but don't point you to the cross, I've just created a new law that you cannot keep and that I cannot keep. The changing point, the pivotal point on my mission trip that I was on was on Wednesday as I weeped on my little bitty bunk with cockroaches and mice as I weeped over my lack of love and as I tried tried the previous day to implement 1 Corinthians 13 and it became so crystal clear that Steve, you're just trying to obey a law you cannot keep. What you've got to do right now at this foot of this bed is come to the foot of the cross and say, Jesus, I cannot love the Honduran people. I do not love the Honduran people. I don't love my own people back home. I don't love my family. I don't love my wife. I don't love my children the way I'm supposed to, and I can't. And no matter how much I try, no matter how much Bible I pump into my mind, I will never, ever be able to until I come to the cross and say, Jesus, you have to do this through me. Because I have no capacity within myself to love. And everything changed on Wednesday. Everything changed. I woke up with a new sense of power and love and joy. What was tedious. Oh boy, there was this one kid named Eminem. That was his name. Eminem. He was literally named after the rapper. And boy, did he have the behavior down. He was the most unlovable kid. I literally wanted to throw him across the basketball court. We were having the games because he was so disrespectful, so ugly, and I did not want to face another day with Eminem. But as God dealt with me on this on Wednesday, I took it to our group because that happened to be the day that I had to do the devotional for our group. We had a night worship service. I did our devotional. And I took it to the group, and I just shared my own struggles. And, and that next day, one of the teenagers, one of the kids that was there, a 12-year-old girl named Ashton, she, she basically held Eminem and just loved on him that whole next day. And he was just a great kid that day. It was wonderful to see what God was doing when Someone would just literally pour themselves out in love. This kid had lice in his hair that you could see. And Ashton just sat there and hugged on him. She didn't care. Her mom didn't care. We'll deal with that. You love on Eminem. And she did. She loved on Eminem. And Eminem heard the gospel that day. I don't know if Eminem's going to ever respond. But I realized this little kid, first of all, he's never seen his dad. Never. And second of all, he lives in poverty that we couldn't even imagine. And he just needs someone to pour out genuine love on him. This is a picture of me with a little old lady. I actually don't remember her name. I think it was Gloria. I know something with a G. And uh, this was the day we were supposed to be shopping. And we all had these wordless book bracelets on that we were using and a track that went along with it and some other stuff. Some of the other people had different tracks. Um, and uh, I just enjoyed that day so much. I, was, I can't explain how filled I was with joy just to go around and talk to people 
and share the gospel with this little lady. Now, as I talked with her, it was a little hard to understand her because her mouth is closed, but if she were to open it, you wouldn't find a single tooth in there. And it was a little hard to understand everything she was saying. Um, but uh, my understanding from listening to her was that she had heard the gospel before, and she knew what it was, and that she had actually given her life to Christ in the past. But, uh, boy, it was so enjoyable just to go out there. I didn't care about shopping. Yeah, we got some cool stuff, but it was mainly about just being out there ministering to people. And it was just a, a transformation that happened in me over the course of those few days. John seventeen twenty six says this. This is Jesus speaking. This is Jesus praying to the Father. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known. Listen to this. That the love of which you have loved, the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. That is a shocking verse. Jesus has prayed to the Father that the love that the Father has for the Son will be in you and me. That is amazing. If, you, if, if at any point you think you can muster up the love you need to have in order to be the type of Christian the Bible calls us to be, that verse will knock you on your keister. Because that verse right there says that the love of the Father that He has for the Son is the love that's been placed within us. That's a whole other level of love. We need the gospel in order to love. 2 Corinthians 5.20, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. Now, I'm going to run through these last two points really quickly. I know it's late. Your stomachs are rumbling, and the food's down there beckoning you. But just hang on. The second thing that's on my heart regarding missional Christianity is directly related to this. Intentional missional Christianity is church-centric. Let me explain what I mean by that. When I talk about missional Christianity being relational, the other part of that is discipleship. We are called in Matthew 28 to make disciples. Hebrews 10.23 says, Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near this is what's happening in ephesians deemer's great sermons from the past couple of weeks are all about the church building up the church the church ministering together and i believe the church is at the heart of missional christianity so mission trips like this is is to go from a church to minister to churches, and to evangelize and to minister and to point people to churches. We work with Renasser Church. We work with Emmanuel Church. The last day of our VBS at Emmanuel Church, um, I gave a gospel presentation to the children using a soccer ball that had the wordless book on it. It's a great little tool to use, especially with kids in a third world country. And I used this soccer ball, and I gave a gospel presentation, but you guys know me. I do not believe in doing some big, hey, everybody pray after me or raise your hand and come forward. So um, I gave them the gospel. And then I said, okay, now we have snacks and now we have games. We're going to divide up into two groups. This half's going to snacks, this half's going to games. And I'm going to stay right up here. And if any of you guys want to come and talk to me more about the gospel, I'm going to be up here. So I turned around and I went up there and I sat that ball down. 
And I was expecting two or three kids, maybe, if I got that many. And they'd just been enticed with games and snacks. Or no, crafts, which had snacks attached to it. So crafts, snacks, games. Go. And I turn around, and there were 26 children standing around me. I was a little overwhelmed at that point. What do I do with these 26 kids? So I took time, and there were some serious interruptions, which I'll get to here in a second. I took some time just to explain the gospel to them. And there were, many of them were obviously too young, or they didn't understand. So about 19 of them, though, wanted to genuinely pray and ask the Lord Jesus to be the King, Lord of their life. So I helped them, and we did that. And I had them all write down their names and where they lived and gave it to Pastor Oscar because it didn't stop there. There's discipleship. The gospel is relational, and discipleship has to be part of a missional Christianity. And so we gave him the 19. He looked at it, and he goes, yeah, I know most of these kids. I know most of these homes. He's been living there for two years in that community. He's built relationships, and he's following up with those families. It was an amazing thing to be a part of. Missional Christianity, outreach, evangelism, missions, it flows out of the church and feeds into the church. Now, there are some exceptions, like the story of the Ethiopian eunuch. But for the most part, missional Christianity flows out of a church as individuals go out into the community with the intention of not just making converts, but making disciples and gaining brothers and sisters and seeing them brought into a family. Paul starts with churches because God's plan is for us to live in community. So Paul goes into towns, he proclaims gospel, and he starts churches, and he disciples. He has this heartfelt desire to see Christ formed in people, not just to see them make a conversion experience. Acts 13, 2. Paul and Barnabas were sent off by a church. Romans 10, 13 and following. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. How will they call on him in whom they've not believed? And how will they believe in him in whom they've never heard? And how will they hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are what? Sent. That means there's a sender. It's not just God. Yes, God sends us all out. But the church is also to be about the job of sending people into community to make a difference. Beautiful feet are sent feet. The passage goes on to say how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. It's connected to the church. Absolutely connected to the church all throughout the New Testament. All throughout it. And that's why in Matthew 28 we're called to make Disciples, which involves sharing our faith in evangelism, but goes beyond that as well. We are a sent people, sent by God. But God uses the means of his family, the church, to send people out and to bring people back into the church to build it up, to build up the body of Christ as Ephesians 4.11 refers to. There are certainly those in the church who have the gift of evangelism. And from this text that we read last week, Ephesians 4.11, we see there is a role in the church for evangelists, but all are called to spread the good news. The evangel, all are called to spread the good news. Evangelizing, okay, usually usually translated in in your English Bibles as preaching the good news or announcing the good news is not aimless. It's aimed at disciples. 
Paul's heart wasn't just to proclaim the gospel or convert people. His heart was to, according to Galatians 4.19, he was in anguish of childbirth until Christ was formed in people. Missional Christianity is church-centric in the sense that it brings people into the church to be discipled, and therefore discipleship is key. Discipleship must be part of what we're doing. Our life transformation groups are supposed to be all about discipleship, but they're also evangelistic tools. As we meet people, we bring them into our small groups and we witness to them. There's many other stories I could tell you, and my time's getting way short. My time's gone, matter of fact. But there's, there's this one lady named Kayla. She's the daughter of, of, uh, of the pastor of the Renasser Church. And her and her husband are starting a ministry out in an impoverished valley with about 800 people that live there. Um, and they're out there starting this ministry, and they're trying to meet medical needs and all kinds of different needs. But neither one of them are called, well, she isn't, obviously, but he's not called to be a pastor either in that community. And they did not want to continue their ministry unless they had a local church presence. So they've worked really hard to find a pastor who will start a church in that community. He's 76 years old. He actually walks three hours to get there every Sunday. 76-year-old walking three hours to, because that's how important the church is. We can't just go into this, this valley of 800 and just start evangelizing. They are doing that. But they recognize the need for the local church to be there. To minister to the needs beyond just reaching out to them with the gospel. The needs for discipleship and continual growth in the gospel. Let me skip over some things to my last point here. Intentional missional Christianity. Oh, there's, there's the pastor of Renasser. Here's the two pastors we work with down there. It was just to show you that we were working with local churches. That was Oscar. This is Oscar. The other one was um, um, uh, Henero. All right. Intentionally missional Christianity, finally, is spiritual warfare. These are just the three things that God put on my heart this week. Uh, last story, I think, and then I'll wrap it up. Um, the first day we went out doing street witnessing, um, as we were coming to a close, we were coming back to the church to get ready to do our VBS. This man in a bright yellow shirt, who was acting rather strangely, walked right up to Noah, just walked straight up to him and got right in his face and just kind of stood there looking at him. Well, Noah was kind of freaked out, you know. I was kind of waiting to see if the second-degree black belt was going to kick in. It didn't. But, you know, he, he just kind of walks up to him. So Noah kind of backs off. And so I, as a dad, I immediately step in there. And say, what's going on? And this guy, he starts mumbling. He starts mumbling about the 9-11 attacks. Starts asking about Osama bin Laden and a bunch of other things. Obviously, he wasn't all right right here. But he immediately began to disrupt everything we're doing, our VBS and everything else. And he had to be asked to leave. And he was asked to leave, and he was escorted out. Now, the next day on street evangelism, there was one house that we had been to the day before that we wanted to go back to. We want to go back. We want to take some supplies. It was an extremely, the poorest home we had seen in that area. We want to go back. And so we, we start walking up the steps. Let me just back up a little bit. This, this guy, his name was Junior. He had also said some very inappropriate things to some of the women in our group. And so this next day, we're walking up, and I have one young lady with me and one of the older men from our group, and we're walking up these steps. And wouldn't you know, it's Junior's house. Junior comes walking out. And we kind of stop right there. We're like, oh, my goodness, it's Junior. So we get up, we go up anyway, he's smoking a cigarette, he immediately flicks it at the girl that was in our group, and she dodged it, and then he starts asking me, he says, so are you bringing me my gringa? And uh, to which I just ignored it, I was trying to talk to the other people in the house, 
And he would get up right, like this close to me, just kind of get in my face. And he had this horrible breath. He had been smoking something. And uh, he would just be right there in my face. And we were trying to minister to this family. And finally, I just turned around. And I kind of, I, I, look I looked at this guy and said, what's your name? He said, Junior. And so I, you know, I, I held his hand like his, hey, Junior. And I looked over at his mom, and his mom said, well, he's sick. She, we can't get him into a mental hospital because he's sick, and we can't afford it. And so I grabbed Junior, and uh, I held his hand, and I said, I'm just going to pray for Junior right now. So I, I laid my, hand, so my other hand on Junior's shoulder, and then he let go of my hand, and he grabbed both of my shoulders, but kind of around my neck. And for a moment there, I was a little freaked out. I thought I'm about to be choked. And he put his hands around me and very tight, just kind of looked at me, and I, I just prayed for him. And I, I prayed for his healing. Now, God didn't bring some sort of spectacular healing. All of a sudden, Junior just all started, oh, start quoting Shakespeare or something. He, just, he was still the same. He was looking around. He was darting around. And after it got done, he, he said some crude things. He asked me if I would pray for a gringa, that God would bring him a, a, a gringa. And just, he began to say some crude things. And then he went down and um, actually was going to um, do some other very crude things and expose himself to some of the people in our group. And we got our group away from there. Wouldn't you know, later that day, when those 26 kids had gathered around me, and I'm talking to them, and I, I was praying with them, all of a sudden I hear Oscar, I mean, I hear, not Oscar, I hear Junior right there, talk. I hear an adult voice, and I look up, and there's Junior sitting right there in that group of kids. And then he comes over and sits beside me, and put his arm around me again, and just kind of had me close to him. And uh, the kids had already talking we were getting their names for follow-up and they started talking about all kinds of different things one kid said now do you know any uh, we're, we're learning english in our school and i said what words do you know so they were telling me english words and Os, uh, junior looks at me and says i know english words too i said really he looks at me and he says six 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 what does that mean to you and i just said it means nothing to me please get away and i just kind of literally at that point pushed him away now he began to act weird and his behavior was was upsetting to the nationals that were there who were at the church, but his behavior was upsetting to the other pastors on our team. And, and I don't know, we eventually had to literally, because the, the people there at that church were scared of him, uh, I actually took him, pushed my hand on his chest, and pushed him out to the gate of the church and said, you don't need to come back. And um, he said, well, I'll, he goes, I'm going right now, but I'll be back. I never saw him again. But uh, talking with some of the other pastors in the church, in our group, we wondered if perhaps what we should have been praying over him was uh, for the demon that was in him to leave him. He may very well have been demon-possessed. I don't know. All I know is this, is that missional Christianity is spiritual warfare. It is spiritual warfare. It says in Colossians 4.12, this is the passage that comes right before the one I read earlier about our speech being seasoned with salt. Continue steadfastly in prayer being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I'm in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. We should be praying that God would grant us opportunities. It's spiritual warfare, guys. Pray that God will give you opportunities, open doors to share your faith. Pray that the word would have an opportunity to go out from you to others. Pray that he would grant us and others grace to be watchful for those opportunities. Pray that we can speak clearly the gospel. We should be praying for ourselves. We should be praying for others that God would open up 
these opportunities. Effective mission work begins with appealing to the king for opportunities to tell people about his kingdom and the gospel that makes our relationship with him possible. Pray every day for opportunities. The Holy Spirit is with us, according to Acts 1.8. Jesus himself is with us, according to Matthew 28.20. We can't fight spiritual battles without that. I've got a thousand other stories. I can't share them all today. There's no way. I'd like to. So you can talk to me at lunch, and I'll tell you some other stories. There was uh, Carolina. The day we prayed for our outreach teams, we said, God prayed this exact thing. Open up opportunities. One of the teams walked out of the doors of the church, walked out, and a woman walked right up to them and said this, I want to know how to have a relationship with Jesus. That's exactly what she said. To which the team went, what? And to which they were skeptical. And they, they went through a gospel track with her, and they prayed with her. And they were so skeptical, and she was shabby, and she looked horrible. They guessed she might be a, a, a person of the streets. Prostitute. Wouldn't you know, after VBS that day, she came back to the church. She had her hair all fixed up, and she said, she said I want one thing. What do you want? I want a Bible. So we went down, we got her a Bible, and gave her a Bible. Okay, that was prayer that God would open up an opportunity and literally just walk right up to them. And there were countless, countless stories like that while we were there of how God just made things happen because there was intentional prayer going on. And I'm praying right now for Olga and Adelise Cruz who are having a horrible time financially. Maria Fernanda and Ligia and Joanna and Kevin and Pedro, which are these children in that tourist town that take a bus an hour and a half into town so they can sell candy to people on the streets. They don't go to school. I'm praying for Gloria, the grandmother you saw on there. And on and on and on. And Noah. Noah's praying for Carlitos and Diego and Moises, some of the kids that he met while he was on the trip. But what about us? What about me? What about you? What about Harbin's? I must change. I must grow. You must change. You must grow. Harbin's must change. It has to. If our core value is going to be, to be intentionally missional, we must change. Intentionally spreading the gospel in our circles of influence and in this community. Very few of us go live here. We must be intentional. We must be relational. We must be missional. We must do much, much more to reach out to our community. We must continue to build relationships with Liberia and the boys' home, but it's got to be more than just relationships and money. I want us to be going on missional, mission trips. The power of unity for a church to be on mission together is amazing. That team, it was just amazing to see what God was doing. Uh, that clicker's not working anymore. I have one more picture. But it's amazing to see what God was doing. We need more short-term mission trips. I've been wanting for a long time, um, I've been wanting for a long time to put a map out in our foyer where we can put points on there where people are at work through our church in the world. So if you're supporting a compassion child or whatever, and we can begin to get excited about God using this church to reach the world. We need prayer warriors in this church that are specifically praying about our evangelistic opportunities in the community. We need to challenge one another to live like missionaries in the world. What does your mission field look like? We must grow in love, which means we must grow in our application of the gospel in our own hearts. And Deemer's going to announce here in a second our small groups, but one of the small groups, that, the small group I'm going to be leading is to take us through, uh, we already did Radical, 
But David Platt's second book, which is Radical Together, he talks about how to apply the principles from Radical in a church context. And here's this phrase that's at the beginning of the book, this question that, that I want us to learn how to answer as a church. He says, how can we in the church best unleash the people of God in the Spirit of God with the Word of God for the glory of God in the world? That question is just boring into my heart because I don't see us doing it right now. We've got to put everything on the table. God, whatever you want to do with Harbin. I want to close with just a word of prayer. We're not going to sing a closing song. I have one, but I passed the time for that a long time ago. I'm going to close with a prayer. Then I'm going to have Deemer come up here and just give you a couple of announcements, and then we're going to head down to our meal together and fellowship and just enjoy the good food together. Okay? Let's pray. Father, I thank you, Lord, for your mercy and your grace. And Lord, I pray, Father, that, um, that you would, um, Lord, that you would just use um, some of the stories and the experiences that you allowed me to go through over the past week to minister to our church body. Lord, I know today was different than what we normally do, our normal, um, more expository style of preaching. But, Lord, I pray, Father, that, um, that I've been obedient. And, Lord, if I failed in any sort of way, I ask your forgiveness and Lord, there's so much more I want to share, and I just didn't measure my time well today. So, Lord, I just pray, Father, that you would move in our hearts. I want Harbin's to be a church on mission. And, Lord, I feel like we're just sort of just coasting right now. I feel like we're having a hard time figuring out who we are and what we're supposed to be doing. Oh, God, I have no answers. All I know is that all of our answers are found in you and in the gospel. So God, we pray, Lord, that you help us, help us to be gospel-driven in all that we do. Forgive us, Lord, of our sins and our selfishness and our inward focus. Help us, Lord, to be on mission for the glory of God. May we be the people of God, moving to do the work of God by the Spirit of God for the glory of God in the world. We ask, Lord, that you bring that to pass. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Deemer. All right, just a, a couple of quick things. Uh, first of all, um, uh, Edwin brought this to my attention. Thank you so much, Edwin. Um, but uh, there's going to be a, a, a public uh, time of prayer this Thursday. It's called Prayer on the Square. Uh, it's been 10 years since 9-11, and, and, and recognition of that, there's going to be a time of public prayer for our nation. It's going to happen at the, the old courthouse in Lawrenceville this Thursday uh, at 7 p.m. If you don't know how to get there, um, you can ask Edwin and he'll help you get there. But it's hosted by a, another church, but it's open to the community. So if you want a time of public prayer to get together with other brothers and sisters uh, and, and uh, lift up our community and uh, our nation, that would be a good time to do that with others. And as Steve mentioned, uh, we are um, going to be launching our small groups real soon. A little later than we normally do, we're actually going to be launching our small groups on Tuesday the 27th, and they're both going to be on a Tuesday this time. That's just kind of how it, how it worked out. Um, and as uh, Steve mentioned, uh, Radical Together is going to be one of those groups. He's going to be taking uh, uh, folks through that uh, book. I know that some of you went through Radical with me, um, I guess, a year ago. I guess that's when we were doing that. If you did the Radical study, this is not going to be a repetition. So, I mean, it, it would be actually a great thing for you to go to, to the Radical Together study, to get more um, details about how uh, we can apply the principles 
uh, of being radical as a community of believers. And if you have not read the book Radical, that's not a prerequisite. You can still go to this study and benefit from it and be a part of it. I think it's going to be a great time. And I'm excited about the... the uh, oh, and that... And that um, that uh, Radical Together is going to be at um, Gabe and Aida uh, Bruzy's house just down the road from here, okay? And um, the one that I am hosting uh, is uh, going to be, actually is going to be hosted at Mark and Katie Pierce's house. I'll be leading it, but we're going to be going through a study called uh, Prodigal God, which is um, uh, a Tim Keller study. Some of you may be familiar with Tim Keller, pastor of uh, Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York, and uh, this is going to be uh, a six-week study based on Jesus' parable of the prodigal son. I'm so excited. This is going to be a little different than some of the other small groups that we have done. This is not, uh, not going to be, uh, well, the past studies have been maybe more thematic on, on kind of different scriptures and, and, and topics, but, but this is going to be six weeks of just on one scripture, on one parable, and so I'm really looking forward to getting deep into this parable. And you may have read this thing a million times, but I guarantee you, if you're sticking your nose in the, in the word for six weeks in this, in this story, uh, I think you're going to be really blessed. And I, I think whether Steve's study or whether the one that I'm leading, both of these really are, are nice dovetails uh, flowing out of Steve's message and, and what God has been putting on Steve's heart. Uh, Prodigal God is all about the gospel, and it's all about the heartbeat of God. And, uh, and so I'm really excited about it. I think it's going to be a, a, a wonderful time. So either one of these, uh, I think you're going you're gonna to love it, and, and God's going to um, bless you through it. So I'm going to put sign-up sheets in the back. And by the way, uh, cost for those things, for Radical Together, it's, uh, it's $10 per person. And it's basically to cover the cost of a book. And there's, there's, a, there's a study questions in the back of the book. So there's no separate thing you have to buy, just the book, and that's it. Uh, for Prodigal God... Uh, it's $10 per person. That's going to get you a study guide. It's going to have uh, questions, study questions, and things to, to, to think about throughout the week. But there's also an option uh, if you want to spend an additional $10. There's the Prodigal God book from Tim Keller, which will get you even deeper into the study as well. Don't have to get the hardbound book if you don't want to, but we want you to get the study guide. And if finances are an issue... We don't want that to get in the way of you being a part of a, of a community group, so let us know, and we'll figure out how to scholarship you, okay? So I'm going to put these sign-up sheets in the back. Uh, we're going to move into our um, fellowship time downstairs, and uh, uh, if, um, if you didn't bring anything, uh, please stay anyway, okay? Uh, if you're new and you didn't know that, that we we're going to have a meal downstairs, please stay. This is a great way for us to get to know you and for you to get to know us, okay? I'd love to see everybody in this room downstairs eating and enjoying one another's company. So uh, let's go ahead and pray and thank God for our food, and then we'll disperse to downstairs. Father, uh